Bricolage is back after a long hiatus. A lot has happened since episode 11. Nearly a quarter million Americans have died from coronavirus. George Floyd is also dead. And so are Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Representative John Lewis, among many others. Joe Biden is not dead, but he is still very old. Donald Trump is still an asshole. The American West is on fire, and so are shares of Zoom. It's a lot. So many small businesses, the blood, the sweat, effort, love, sacrifice given by these people to these corporate forms, to their livelihoods, many of them may never return. It's a lot. I don't know what it's like to be black, to feel other. As James Baldwin once wrote, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. It's a lot, both that hate and absolutely, definitively, also that pain. Already more than four times the number of Americans who died in the Vietnam War have died from coronavirus, and the number of fatalities shows no sign of slowing down. It's a lot. Amy Coney Barrett is now the ninth justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. This means that five of the nine justices on the Supreme Court were nominated by a president who lost the popular vote at least once. That's more than half. So 55% might not seem high, but given that context, it's a lot. As of mid-October 2020, over 4 million acres of land in California alone have burned. That's a lot. Indeed, it's all a lot. It's profound and devastating and overwhelming. So there won't be a bricolage opening sketch. There'll be plenty of time for those later. Instead, we're going to start this stupid podcast with some important words from the late, great John Lewis, speaking at the March on Washington on August 28th, 1963. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail. But we will go to jail if this, this is a prize we must pay for love, brotherhood, and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. 
or in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom. You're listening to Bricolage. Truth, comedy, politics. With your host, Lev. On this episode of Bricolage, we'll hear from our new sponsor, Willstone, a few times, and I'll chat with a former lobbyist and Trump supporter who's also an old friend from college, Barry Shapiro. Plus, trivia as always with small business owner Josh Ellis. But first, sponsors. This episode of Bricolage is brought to you by Blue Canopy, the newest musical project from Bricolage theme song mastermind Alex Schiff. Blue Canopy. Listen wherever you stream your music. Also, by the email you just got from a website you bought shoelaces from in 2011, reassuring you that their new COVID cleaning procedure is state-of-the-art. Guess what? It's not state-of-the-art, and fuck you and the ventilator we're all going to need soon. And finally, this episode of Bricolage is brought to you by gaining weight during a pandemic. You've heard of the freshman 15, well this is the COVID-19. Into the oven they go as we go to commercial. Four Michelin-starred chefs, each forced to make food for three overweight, pretentious half-wits. Only two chefs will make it to the next round where they will compete to see who can throw the most edible material into the garbage while 20 of the more than 37 million food-insecure Americans try to eat it first. We'll be right back with more of the carnage you crave on Capitalism Does Not Work. Backed up in traffic. Stuck inside the office. You know, Istanbul was once constipated too. It was? You bet, Ronald. So you mean everyone has trouble, uh, getting it out? Well, you're an extraordinary case, but you can wave goodbye to your trouble with Willstone's brand new Just Do Do It. Oh, okay. Eat one of our patented Just Do Do It biscuits and make sure you're within 20 feet of an excretion station. Wait, how because many Because it'll be doo-doo time before you know it. Oh my god, it won't stop! Just Do Do It when it's time to get it out. Willstone! Time for Bricolage Trivia with Josh Ellis. Now here's the question. IVA, EVA, and the hybrid IEVA are the three internationally standardized categories of what kind of garment, which typically retails for around $10 million. Once again, IVA, EVA, and the hybrid IEVA are the three internationally standardized categories of what kind of garment, which typically sells for around $10 million.
For this episode of Bricolage, I spoke to a friend of mine in the spring of 2019. It only took me a year and a half to post, and pretty much nothing has happened politically since then. For what it's worth, when I reached out to Barry prior to posting this episode, he noted that if Trump loses his re-election bid, it won't be, quote, based on his governance. It'll be because he's an overgrown child. Barry confirmed that he did indeed vote for Trump in the 2020 election, but added that he hopes Trump, quote, leaves office for one reason or another because President Pence would be, quote, calm and measured. Barry had briefly wavered in his support of Trump several months back because of the president's, quote, politicization of wearing a mask and general messaging around COVID. Look, I think we touched on a lot in this conversation, and I think it's as valuable now as it was when we had it, even as I record this intro two days before the 2020 election. So without further ado, here's me and Barry. Hey, buddy. Hello, sir. How are you? Good. Just packing for a trip tomorrow. Oh, yeah? Where are you going? Uh, I'm going on a four-day cruise. Oh, shit. That sounds... That's what, like, Florida people do. Okay. My, like, weekend vacations are cruises in Disney World. (laughs) I've never lived in Florida, but I guess once you get there, that's what you're required to do. You have to go on cruises. I don't don't know how that works. I mean, you pretty much have to love Disney World. People who don't like Disney World are ostracized. I like Disney World. I mean, it's it's okay. I wouldn't, like, want to go there more than, I don't know, once every 10 years, five years? (laughs) Am I supposed to, like, is it more frequent? That's, I don't know. I mean, there's... There's a lot to do. At Disney? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean... Is there? Like, there's multiple parks. Yeah, but the parks are huge. There's different experiences. I mean, they, they design things. And there's all the hotels and the bars, the shopping, the events. I always forget that you're a travel guide now for Orlando. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, Florida's fucking savage. I'm not that much of a fan. and I want to go back to Texas, but it is what it is. And I like my job. I don't have a bad life here. Well, that's, that's good. That's important. Not having a bad life is important. Right? We're very lucky. We are fortunate. We live in the greatest country in the world. Where do you live in Florida? I live in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay, and as I understand it, Jacksonville's official city motto is home of rednecks. Is that... I may have my info incorrect. So why is there so much Disney in your life? Because I live two and a half hours away. I have an annual pass and a lot of my friends like to go. You have an annual pass? I do. That means you can go at any time to any of the Disney World and related parks and experiences. Yes, kind of. So I still, even though I live in Florida, I still am a frugal Jew. So I didn't go (laughs) for like the platinum pass for Disney World. I went with the silver pass. So I do have blackout dates which coincide with the school vacations in Florida. So I can't go for two weeks in December, two weeks in April during spring break, and then like two and a half months in the summer. But that's okay because I don't want to go to Disney World in the summer because one, it's full of tourists, and two, it's hot as well. Wow, I can't imagine what Disney World would be like with tourists in it. That's crazy. How often have you been? Uh, So this year, I've been twice. Last year, I went 10 times, actually. To Disney World or to Epcot or to, or sorry, Magic? Kingdom, Epcot, what else they got? They got like a a, a safari one. Yep. Animal Kingdom, Hollywood Studios, Magic Kingdom, and Epcot are the four. And then there's downtown Disney. There's like 30 on-property hotels. Then 
Orlando also has Universal, but I actually haven't been to Universal or anything outside of Disney in Orlando. Well, you spent so much money on that fucking Silver Pass, you had to mortgage your home. So I understand why you haven't been to Universal yet. Yeah, well, actually, it wasn't that expensive. Florida residents get a discount. So I paid like 440 bucks, which a two or three day pass for a non-resident costs about $190. Oh, gotcha. So that goes to your your aforementioned Jewish identity, perhaps, that you, you, you smelled a bargain. Yes. I mean, I am aware that once I've spent the money, it's a sunk cost and it shouldn't factor into my decision whether or not to go. But because I like to go, that's where the value lies for me. Okay. I just can't fathom going to Disney that many times without like a child. Like it just feels like something I would grow to like truly hate. Like I might just like beat the shit out of a six year old and just snap. So it's, it's fun. And you know, you can now get alcohol in all the parks. Oh, that's huge. When did that happen? Before I got to Florida two and a half years ago, but here's the real kicker because so many people have food allergies. They now allow you to bring food inside the park. So I just put a thermos of vodka in my bag and they don't care. They're searching for weapons and drugs. They don't care if I bring in alcohol. I get pretty lit. <laughs> are you just on the line for Space Mountain waiting to take a leak for like two hours? Or what, I mean, what are you doing? I don't really drink so much at Magic Kingdom or Hollywood Studios because they have the rides and I get severe motion sickness. I still go on the roller coasters. I just take Dramamine and Zofran. But I'll drink at Animal Kingdom for sure. And I definitely drink at Epcot. Dude, I fuck at Epcot. I mean, there's not a single thing I haven't done at Epcot. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, I brought you on to Bricolage for many reasons, one of which has to do with politics, but I'm going to put that to the side for a sec. So you and I have known each other since college. We go back quite a ways. We both grew up in the Northeast. We're both Jew-ish, as it were. Mm-hmm. We both are fans of marijuana. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. I, yes, I am a fan, but I haven't done any drugs in multiple years because federal law prohibits me from owning firearms and being a user of recreational illicit drugs. They actually ask you a question on your background check. Are you an unlawful user of drugs? If you answer yes to it, you're prohibited from purchasing a firearm. And I believe, I mean, I'm not an attorney. I'm just a master (laughs) of the business that you actually can't even own firearms if you are a user of drugs. Well, I am an attorney. And anytime somebody asks me for legal advice at work or otherwise, I always say you should ask a lawyer. (laughs) I don't know the answer. You're not that kind of lawyer. Yeah. Meaning like, I don't swing that way. Right. You're a corporate sellout. (laughs) No, I meant defense attorney. No, I meant like, that's true too. But I meant like, if somebody tries to like put their hands on me and grope me, I'm like, I'm not that kind of lawyer. I'm not that kind of girl, Fred. So, but after college, I moved to LA. I was trying to make it as a screenwriter and now I'm a lawyer. You moved to uh, DC and you worked on K Street for several years, three years, four years, something like that. Yes. K Street in the parlance of DC is where, well, it's literally the street, but it's also where the lobby firms are and it sort of differentiated from the hill where the congressional staff and and congress sits so but can you answer a question for me that i genuinely like i'm not trying to be snarky i really don't know the answer what does a lobbyist do 
That is a fantastic question. So right in the First Amendment, there's the right to petition government for redress of grievances. So lobbyists are people's voice in D.C. Not everyone can have boots on the ground in D.C. and be heard by their elected representatives and officials within the executive branch department. What we do is we convey the message on behalf of our clients, whoever they may be, whether it be a nonprofit or a special interest group or a big corporation with very narrowly focused interests. We cultivate relationships with policymakers. And then on top of that, we advance their interests through educational causes. So I like to say that there are two types of lobbyists. There's your grassroots lobbyists. They're the ones who are cultivating a groundswell of support for a particular issue. And then there's your access lobbyists who are more commonly portrayed on television. And they're the ones who have the connections to people and curry favor and just do the trade-offs. They have personal relationships with people so they can get into or get in front of specific policymakers. When you say trade-offs, I assume you're not talking about quid pro quo, because as I understand, that's illegal. no, no, no. No, it's like horse trading. So think of it this way. Let's just look at Congress. Let's not even look at the executive branch, the regulatory agencies. You have 435 members in the House, plus a few non-voting delegates. You have 100 senators who really are at a point where they have to delegate a lot of their authority to their congressional staff because they have to fundraise a lot and they have families that they have to take care of and be a part of. They have lives. They're not perfect. Our job is to synthesize information into one-pagers, essentially, and educate them. Half of the battle is getting in front of the policymaker because their time is limited. So what my firms did was we would work through the ranks and for areas that our companies and groups that we represented, that they had people in that congressional district, we would talk to the legislative correspondent and the legislative assistant and the policy director or legislative director, the chief of staff. And hopefully at that point, when we could get an on-site visit with our client, we would be able to meet with somebody of power, meaning the congressperson themselves or the chief of staff or a committee staff member. So there's a ton of legwork that goes into it. Right. Something you just mentioned. So you said as long as the your client, as long as the lobbying firm's client actually was a constituent in some way, Correct. that would be the, the representative or the senator that you would reach out to. So in other words, if you were representing an organization that did not have a single footprint, either no employees or no sort of stream of commerce in Iowa, you would not be talking to any senators or reps in the state of Iowa. Well, that's not entirely true because all of these congresspeople and senators sit on various committees. So, you know, we, we touch the committees, but when it comes to floor votes, you really, really focus on the areas in which lives and jobs are affected. You know, depending on the power of the lobbyist, you can talk to anybody, but make no mistake about it. Politicians are in the business of winning elections. And there's no value for them to listen to somebody who has no interests within their district, unless they're running for higher office. What percentage of time would you say that your clients, and I know it depends on which lobbying firms you work for and your specific client base or whatever, but what percentage of time would you say that you were working against the passage of a particular bill versus for the passage? 50-50. Really? Granted, I was 21 through 27. I didn't pick my clients. My bosses did. They picked their clients 
and they targeted things that they believed in. So, and I, I just did whatever, you know, I had to put my personal politics aside. Fortunately, I was lucky enough to work at a firm where I actually agreed with a lot of the clients that I represented and they were on both sides of the aisle or had issues on both sides of the aisle. A lot of the smaller issues that you don't think about are not partisan issues. They're truly regional issues. Can you give me an example? Yeah, like cash for clunkers. <laughs> Do you remember that policy? Uh, yeah, the car trade-in. Yeah, car trade-in. I always say cash for clunkers when I meet somebody who kind of sucks. I'll turn to my wife and I'll say, this guy's cash for clunkers. So it's it's taken on new meaning for me. <laughs> but yeah, sorry, keep, keep going. In areas that had a lot of older cars and a lot of SUVs, people were looking to downgrade to something more economical. It was more advantageous for that area. Likewise, let's look at ethanol, right? Ethanol is a completely regional issue. There is no environmental benefit to it. That's been long disproven. And a lot of the environmental groups have withdrawn their support for corn-based ethanol. You have corn growers in the Midwest who benefit from it, right? Society at large, in my personal opinion, does not benefit from it. Not a lot of corn is grown in Long Island, right? So what's the point of someone really advocating for federal subsidies for biofuels if they're a representative from Long Island, from Syosset or Jerica? There is none. You want to give out my parents' home address too while you're at it? Yeah, why not? Are you able to talk about what firm you were working at? It was more than one firm or it was one firm in particular? So I worked at one firm for three and a half years. And then after the 2010 elections, I realized I could make more money just by doing contract work. So I was just a free agent doing research and policy analysis and helping coordinate. So when you were at your firm, you spent some time working for Andrew Wheeler, who is now the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Yes. What was that like? I actually worked at the firm before he got there and we recruited him off the hill. And he is just a great person. He is a JD MBA. He's a member of Mensa, really personable, really funny, fantastic manager. He's the kind of guy that spent time teaching me the ropes and letting me explore policy areas that I was interested in and run with things. Personally, regardless of your opinion on the Trump administration's environmental policies, I think that every American should be feeling very lucky that a competent manager is at the head of a 15,000 person government agency. Well said. So do you have any thoughts on his predecessor, Scott Pruitt? Not really. I don't know him. And to be honest, I don't really care. I'm super proud of Andrew. I think he's just such a great guy. You know, he is an environmentalist. And I remember sitting in his office and him saying things like, you know, I really care about water issues. And he actually got hammered in the press a couple months back because he said the greatest issue of our time right now is access to clean water and clean water issues. And some people in the media went nuts because he didn't. He didn't say climate change. He didn't say climate change. Right. I happen to agree with him on this one. Climate change is probably a problem, but it's not an immediate problem. And there are still people in Flint and all across the country who don't have access to potable water or have water with levels of elevated pollutants. I'll give you the final but, word. Uh, uh, look, this is, this is uncharted territory. The President of the United States has a, a Pinterest board, and he's pinned to that virtual board a map which depicts Nova Scotia 
as part of the uh, United States. We have to treat this as a change to American foreign policy because it very well might be. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you to Frank Partridge, our resident social media expert. Always nice seeing you, Frank. My pleasure. After this commercial break, yet another tell-all book from a member of the president's inner circle has been announced. This one has a unique title. How many words does this need to be for me to get paid? More when we return. So there's no guard at the back door, eh? Yeah. Everything leaves when it pleases? Ugh, it's like a diesel train through drywall. Except the wall is my shorts. And they're not dry at all. Who, what, when, where? Diarrhea. Is it that obvious? Ronald, it's like Mitch McConnell in a Dominican neighborhood. I need help. I just wish there was some way to make it stop. I suppose I... suppository right. Introducing Clog Rump. Suppositories from Willstone, the opposite of a plunger for your rump. Clog your rump with Clog Rump today. You were there during the end of the Bush presidency and the first part of the Obama administration. I was going to ask, like, what's it like to work there as a conservative? And is it different depending on who occupies the White House or the Senate or the House? Completely different. In the Bush years, people were very good looking and like Georgetown. And as soon as Obama took office, all the fat, ugly people took power. (laughs) I'm not making this up, unfortunately. And then, like, the bar scene changed significantly and the, the seat of power really changed. You know, people get arrogant when they're in power. And I'm sure that it was like that in the Bush administration, in the Trump administration, Republicans feel that they're in charge. That doesn't change the fact that we're still one country and you have to be nice to each other. But we don't live in that day and age. And I wanted no more of it after four and a half years. Yes, we have to be nice to each other. That's why the Obama administration is full of fat, ugly people. (laughs) After DC, you moved to China. I visited you while you were there. You lived there for a couple of years. You had lived there as well during college. Can you talk a little bit about China. I I despise China and communism, I think. The reason why I was an international area studies major with a focus on East Asia, predominantly China, was because I thought China was a land of opportunity. And I thought, oh, I'll learn Mandarin, I'll learn Chinese history, I can do business here and beat China. And nobody beats China. President Trump is probably the hardest line person towards China. And although I wouldn't say he's beating China, he's actually putting up a great fight. So when it comes to his trade tariffs, I'm 100% on board. I do understand and recognize that they may be hurting parts of America and raising the cost of living, but this is a truly necessary evil. It's not a righteous evil. Mm -hmm. This is a long-term battle. Half of their industry is supporting foreign nations and their manufacturing, and then part of it is copying it. So It's part of the culture, though, the art of copying. I remember when I was doing a lot of research on intellectual property when I first got out of law school, I was was doing some cross-border deal-making including some joint ventures in China. And it's not necessarily culturally considered incorrect to steal or borrow or copy in China. If anything, it's considered flattery. My theory on the root cause of this, because I taught English in China and I taught English to adults and I did corporate English training. The Chinese education system is based on pure rote memorization. The things that we value in our education system, like creativity and individualism and critical thinking, those are skills not taught in the Chinese education 
education system. So they are not trained to innovate. That's not to say that there isn't a incredible art scene and music scene within China. Yes, they do have their creatives. But so, but as far as China as a country, putting aside the political aspects, what was that like? What was it like for you to move over there, to live there, to become part of Beijing? I loved it. I was very fortunate growing up that my parents inspired a love of travel and kind of helped me develop a sense of fearlessness when it comes to putting myself out there and living amongst things that I'm uncomfortable with. You know, I spent a lot of time studying Chinese culture and politics and business and history. So it wasn't like a true culture shock. I went in with an open mind and open heart saying, I'm going to absorb as much of it as possible. But there are things that are incredibly grating on you as an American. The first of which is the pollution. There were days where you just did not want to go outside. And I can't remember exactly when it was. On top of the U.S. Embassy is an air quality index or was an air quality index reader. And so they would always put out the AQI in China and it was never supposed to go above 800. California tops out at like 150. So they never expected it to go out above 800. And at each level, they have a, some sort of verbal warning. So, you know, like dangerous, don't go outside. And after 800, the programmer thinking that it would never get this high road, it's fucking polluted. Needless to say, one day it did get above 800 and it said fucking polluted. And then the other thing is our version of common courtesy is completely different. So there's not a lot of forming lines. I think you remember <laughs> that. I like to say that it's because you have a nation of only children who have never learned to share. That's ironic in a communist country. Well, communism is all about for the common good, is it not? Oh, I see. I just assume that they know sharing, the collectivization, the idea of common. Right. So your sense of personal space and forming lines. Oh, I see. I see. It's really more cutthroat than anything. Yeah, it's a little counterintuitive when you phrase it like that. But yeah, I mean, they don't know how to share anything. They don't know how to share personal space. They don't know how to share the road. This is a vast oversimplification, but there's the concept of space in China, which is like this thing of honor, I guess, and how it reflects upon you and your family that we don't have. Ours is more along the lines of pride. Theirs is slightly different. As I understand it, you voted for Donald Trump in 2016. I did not. And you've told me that you're probably going to vote for him in 2020. I didn't say probably. I will vote for him again. Why did you vote for Trump in 2016? And are those the same reasons why you will vote for him again in 2020? I can answer that. But let me start by saying I will not vote for him for the same reason. The reason why I'm going to vote for him again is because ultimately my tax burden is less. I love what he's done with Israel and China and I, part of the reasons why I voted for him in the first place. I like his energy policy. There are areas where he's faltered. I think this bump stock ban was a gross overreach. And I want to preface by telling your two listeners that I'm not <laughs> a conservative. You're not a conservative. I am conservative on specific issues, but I'm more libertarian. I just, I'm tired of having these arguments over morality and whether or not the government should be the almighty arbiter of morality, whether it come to gay marriage or transgender rights or abortion. Like we've been having the abortion argument for what, 50 years now? Yeah. And yeah. we're still having it? Like, get out of the business of governing and legislating morality, period. So yes, I am fiscally conservative. I really, really don't care what an individual does as long as it doesn't directly negatively impact another individual. Most people would say that's libertarian, but there are some issues that I'm not libertarian on. Like, I do like having a social safety net for the impoverished and the ill or the infirm. I think that's super important. Like, we need to take care of each other. I am not 
a fan of the welfare state, so like basic social safety net. But ultimately, right now we're at a point where politicians are just trying to bribe you with your own money. Free college. Let's look at that. Who pays for it? Obviously, the taxpayer does. It's not free. None of these things are free. Somebody asked me the other day, like, Hillary Clinton's pretty moderate. Why didn't you vote for her? I was like, well, she didn't promise me anything. And that's the truth is Trump said he was going to lower taxes. And for me, as somebody who worked in D.C. and saw the dysfunction of the federal government, I don't want my tax dollars going to a lot of that shit. He also said he was going to provide better health insurance for all, a much better plan. He also made a lot of other promises about reforming and benefiting the American worker, which definitely have not come true. I think he campaigned as more of a rebellious moderate, but has kind of governed as a fairly traditional Paul Ryan type Republican. Do you agree with that or no? No, I mean, he definitely does not fit into the mold of a traditional Republican. And on top of it, the shit that comes out of his mouth is absolute craziness. What he says is very different from how his administration is governing. And I feel that I'm better off than I was four years ago. Is there anything about what he said or done well in office that does upset you? You mentioned the bump stock thing that he was willing to ban bump stocks is the only thing you've listed as something you disagree with. Okay, so let's let's talk about that specific policy for a second. Sure. I think maybe you should back up and explain your love of guns. How many guns do you own? 20. So right on my car, I have my Disney annual pass holder magnet. And next to that is my NRA magnet. <laughs> I got to Texas after moving to China and somebody took me shooting. And I already knew that I felt pretty strongly about the Second Amendment as a true differentiator of what made the United States great. Did you grow up with guns? No, I grew up in a liberal Jewish household in Connecticut. I had fired guns before. I did riflery one year in high school. And you know, you're shooting 22 long rifle, like little target rifles, baby shit. You know, I'd been to the range a few times in college. I think I went with you to the range one of those times. Probably. I mean, remember we bought a shotgun. There was a bet for $50 that Walmart wouldn't sell him a shotgun while he was visibly <laughs> intoxicated. <laughs> I did not go with you guys, but I, I do remember this now in retrospect. I bet him 50 bucks that Walmart wouldn't sell him a shotgun. He's like, I know they will. And he pounded like four Mickey's 40s and was like unable to stand, slurring his word, barely had his shirt on. You, you, you know how it was. Yeah. yeah, he bought a shotgun there. And you don't think there's anything a little weird about that? No government intervention in that sale should take place? He passed a background check. Federal law allows an FFL, a federal firearms licensee, also known as a gun dealer, or somebody who's in the business of buying and selling guns for profit, to deny a sale for any reason. Literally, the law is very clear. If they don't feel right about it, they can do it. If they're harboring some sort of internal prejudice, they cannot sell a firearm. You know, I didn't grow up with guns, but I always thought that it was important. Part of the fabric of American society and our constitution, we're the only country that really entrusted citizens to own firearms. The reason why it was done is to protect against tyranny. I don't expect the tyranny to happen. Maybe a crooked cop comes knocking on my door and tries to shake me down for money. But anyway, so I'm in China when Sandy Hook happens and I'm living with three roommates and they're just like all anti 
gun. Like, even though I don't own guns, I'm clearly libertarian. It's like, you can't fault a bad person and all of a sudden penalize everybody else and take away their gun. The way you spoke about U.S. law was as though the Second Amendment very clearly 100% guarantees the right for every individual to own as many guns of unlimited or limited firepower, range, scope, scale, all of that. But the Second Amendment, if I'm reading it as a contract lawyer, I think it very clearly is the whole clause is meant to be read to apply to the militia. No, completely wrong. From a grammatical standpoint, the independent clause is the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The well-regulated militia is the dependent clause. One stands by itself, the other does not. But there are commas on both sides of the being necessary to the security of a free state. So the militia, because that's necessary, then, therefore, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That's my read of it. Listen, DC v. Heller, there's lots of court cases that agree with you. Certainly the originalist... Federalist papers agree with you. Well, I mean, the Federalist papers are pretty irrelevant to the guns we have now. The whole point of it was that people should be able to own the same stuff as the military. Well, the point of it was just to get states to sign on. Three-fifths of black people. Do I think that there should be limits on what people own? Right. I mean, like, realistically, like, I've seen a lot of dumb shit at the gun range. I prefer if people did not own rocket launchers. I've shot fully automatic weapons. They're not easy to control. My point is, is that I now have 20 guns. Yes. There is zero chance of me giving them up to anyone. Okay, now I'll let you talk about bump stocks. Okay, so it's this mechanism that goes on the back of a rifle that allows you to pull a trigger faster. A bump stock is now redefined as a machine gun, but that's not how it mechanically operates. So this is something that had already passed through regulatory agencies and gotten approval as this is not a machine gun. What Trump did is reinterpreted a law, like the statute is pretty clear, and he said that now it's a firearm. The bump stock just allows you to pull the trigger fast. And I had one. They're a novelty. They're absolute shit. And this is where I have a problem with things like the Chevron defenses. We defer a lot to the executive branch agency, and then they do things that aren't really allowed by Congress. So basically, the executive branch agency is overstepping their bounds and going into what I think is congressional territory and responsibility. Same thing with the DREAM Act. Like, that's not allowed by law. But what Obama did is interpreted immigration law to allow for DREAMers to stay in there. Not saying it was an immoral thing. I'm saying that you have this regulatory overreach, and both parties are guilty of it. Every single administration does it. The unitary executive. This isn't kind of how I want my country to be governed in terms of having some like four or eight years, having somebody new get into power and right. all of a sudden re- reinterpret law that is pretty unambiguous. I do feel like Chevron deference does make sense given how polarized we are. Like you don't want courts questioning the executive determination, the administrative agency determination, as long as it's like reasonable. And I think that they're not able to reinterpret unless the statute is ambiguous or unclear in some way. So this is the other part while I did do the lobbying in Congress, we did just as much the regulatory agencies. So they can reinterpret things. They can have a little thing. They can have a court challenge, like sue and settle. So, you know, a group will say, oh, I'm suing you over this policy. And then they'll say, okay, this is prompting us to rewrite it. Right. There's no rhyme or reason. But part of that is because our legislature 
is incompetent. It cannot legislate. No, that's by design. It's meant to be Perhaps, slow and but it's never been this non-functional. I mean, it's not deliberative. There are so many problems. We barely pass anything in the Senate. McConnell won't even let it come to the floor to be discussed. Would you disagree with that? I do want to disagree with it. So maybe we're not passing as many laws as we used to, but the laws that we're passing now are much larger and more comprehensive. Right. We're not right. passing individual spending bills anymore. We're passing omnibus spending bills. So take 12 spending bills and put them into one. That's what we're doing. So you can't compare apples to apples right. in right. this case. The question was, IVA, EVA, and the hybrid IEVA are the three internationally standardized categories of what kind of garment, which typically sells for around $10 million. The answer, a spacesuit. That's it. That's the answer. That's all I got. Uh, Dippin' Dots and Tang are not very tasty. Either we have police officers and they act with the same reckless disregard for human life as our great military, or we have no police and the laws in society will break down. There is no middle ground. Thank you for your call and for your patriotism, Patrick. We're going to go to a sponsor in just a sec, but first I just want to remind everybody that there are libtards out there laughing at us. We have to win. Gosh, I feel like my colon is constantly fluctuating between soup and cement. Schizophrenic schizology, eh? Yeah, it's worse since I started taking meds. I love the way Willstone's Just Do Do It Biscuits opened me up rough and right, and Willstone's Clog Rump Suppositories dry me up fresh and feisty, but I wish there was some middle ground, you know? Sounds like your behind needs to make up its mind. I guess, but how? Introducing Evenload Ass Chips. When you're caught between a rock and a soft place, even out your load with Evenload Ass Chips. From Willstone, the makers of Just Do Do It and Clog Rump. Back to guns. Yeah, well, actually, I want to go back to Trump because that was the original reason why we talked about bump stocks. You said that that was the thing you can think of that Trump was wrong about. And I was wondering if there was anything else that you thought he was wrong about other than that reinterpretation. Well, I think he's wrong on this abortion stuff. I'm not just pro-choice. I'm more along the lines of, like, let's not bring unwanted children into the world, period. Okay. So I guess that makes me pro-death. You're not on board with Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh? No, of course I'm on board with them. I agree with them on mostly everything else. Just because I don't agree with a person on one issue doesn't mean I should hate them or not support them. You have to look at somebody in their entirety. You want to know something that I'm pissed off at President Trump at is I wanted us to cut federal agencies and cut federal spending, and he hasn't. Why are we still spending money on half of the grants that we do if we're not cutting back defense spending? Why aren't we making defense spending smarter? What else has upset you about Trump? Uh, not that much. Charlottesville? Both sides? 
honestly, whatever he says, I just kind of ignore it. It's really what he does. What about the way he speaks about dictators and authoritarian leaders around the world and the way he criticizes traditional allies and the heads of states that we have a friendly relationship with? Putin, Kim Jong-un, Bolsonaro. Who gives a shit? He's pandering. He wants media attention. I like President Trump. He amuses me immensely. And the way that he's governing is completely different from what he's saying. He's provided a very even keel in terms of government stability. Businesses are always looking for certainty from government action. And he, you he think has provided that this it. president has provided stability to the business world? Yes. The trade war, all of his threats. I feel like he's every CEO is on edge. I don't see it the way you do. The trade deficit in 2018 was its highest since 08. Look, he's deregulating, which businesses have been asking for. Job market is phenomenal. Unemployment is low. The economy is growing. What about T-Mobile spending all these money at Trump hotels to try and curry favor with him? What about how eminently corruptible this president is? Perhaps you could also say he's eminently corrupt. Does that give you any pause? I don't think anyone is incorruptible. The power of the almighty dollar is supreme. What about any of the Russia stuff? The fact that Don said, we're interested. Don Jr., I mean. Yeah. None of that feels a little weird? No, I don't think that feels weird at all. I mean, like, let's be honest. I would dig dirt on Hillary Clinton, too. The fact that they had it and they were offering All the it. details about Trump taking money from Russian banks, Eric Trump saying we get all our money from Russia. You don't think there's anything a little weird about his involvement with that country and its oligarchs? No, the dude's a businessman. Of course he's going to take money from Russia. It's smart business. I don't think Warren Buffett takes money from Russia. Warren Buffett doesn't need money because he sells stock and has like profitable industries that he has sources of revenue to continue investing. Oh, as opposed to Donald Trump's Jimmy Buffett style licensing source of revenue? Yeah, I mean, did you ever have the Trump vodka? It was pretty terrible, but... I never tried it. Did you? Have you actually tried it? Yeah, it was in like a reverse obelisk shape. It had a gold thing and big Is that what you bring to Disney World? Old cases of Trump vodka? (laughs) What upsets me the most isn't how he behaved or what he did. It's the fact that now I'm hearing people who are legitimately upset that our president is not a Russian agent. I mean, the narrative is over as far as I'm concerned. Like, there is no conspiracy. There was no coordination. There was, like, probably bad acting. And, like, you know, he's kind of an idiot. You think he's purely stupid? I don't think he's stupid. I think that he's an inexperienced politician. Obama was a fluke. But people don't rise to the top because they, like, are just handed it. They earn it. Politics is a full contact sport. A lot of the people who have been in it for years have accumulated power over time because they've made mistakes and they've learned from them. There's a lot of groveling. There's a lot of apologizing to your constituents. People admit that they were wrong. Kirsten Gillibrand used to be a conservative from upstate New York. Well, she wasn't a conservative. She was a moderate. Yes, moderate, but conservative Democrat. To be a moderate on either in either party is increasingly difficult. Right, and now she's a self-styled ultra-progressive. Granted, she represents New York City liberal elite, but people change. You once told me a great joke about Chuck Schumer. Speaking of my other senator, what is the most dangerous place in Washington, D.C.? Between Chuck Schumer and a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how I feel about Donald Trump. I wrote a post on Medium, which is obviously the most important piece of journalism you'll ever conceive of. But I wrote a post on Medium that I published right before his inauguration, where I basically urged him to find his like inner humility. Because I think he's like a walking study in confirmation bias. I think he's like a pathological dilettante with uh, uh, just like a total delusional, overinflated sense of self. And I think when you're the president of a privately held real estate 
company, you're not used to public scrutiny and there's like no accountability beyond the bottom line. And you're not used to people like questioning what you do and say or criticizing your mistakes or pushing back on your impulses for better or worse. And the US government is very different. In fact, it's the polar opposite. The president is like a PR figurehead. What he says matters, what he does matters, how he speaks matters, who he speaks to, what he speaks about. And you saying that you don't care about that stuff to me is like, that's like maybe the most important thing a president can do. As governing goes, they don't really vary all that much. The PR piece is hugely important. I disagree. I think they do govern very, very differently, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah, no, I also agree they govern very differently, but that was my way of trying to get you to come over to my side. Yeah, good job. You did it. (laughs) I've done it, everybody. So, you know, like I have different political beliefs than you. And all of a sudden now in this day and age, because I have different political beliefs than you. I'm an asshole or I'm a bigot or whatever. I don't think you're either of those things. I know. That's because I know I'm not and I appreciate you saying that. But remember, I'm not defined by by how I vote or who I support. I'm defined by my actions outside of that. Of course. Once every four years, I vote for a president, but all of a sudden, I'm like a Trump supporter who shouldn't be respected or entitled or if you saw me wearing a Make America Great Again hat, you should beat me up or throw things at me. I don't have Make, make America Great Again hat because uh, red is not my color. My congressman, Hakeem Jeffries, says that not every person who voted for Trump is a racist, but every fucking racist voted for Trump. Do we agree on that? No, it's a good line. No, we don't. It's all about winning elections. The president refused to disavow David no, 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 Duke's no, 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 endorsement. No, no, no. I, I think it's despicable, too. And I see the same thing like Ilhan Omar. I think that she's a terrible person for the shit that she well, said. Well, hold on a sec. Let's not compare Ilhan Omar to David Duke. Who hates Oh, come on, man. That's an outrageous comparison, and I won't even dignify it with a response. I don't think you're a bigot. I don't think you're an asshole. One of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I wanted to have that dialogue, and I wouldn't have brought you on if I thought you were a bad person or not otherwise worth talking to. I think a lot of the things you said are really interesting, and frankly, I value the opinion of others, and I am glad you came on to say them. So, yes, but we very much disagree disagree about Donald Trump. The intolerance that used to be on the right has now become moral righteousness on the left. I think they're both still there, but yeah. People who spend all their time being angry at the other side or angry at President Trump, they're wasting their time. There are things that you should literally be upset about. When the government makes errors, you need to be upset and you need to speak up. But if you're spending your day reading his tweets or criticizing Michelle Obama's arms, then you have a big fucking problem. That's the state of our politics. Yeah, we agree. For me, looking at guns is like, I understand where people are coming from if they don't like guns, but I happen to love guns. So don't try to regulate my passion if you know absolutely jack shit about it. I think that's well said. I'll give you the last word on that. Anything else you wanted to uh, add while you're on the bricolage? I just want to remind all of your listeners that when you were in college and you wore your patchwork pants, you swore you were never going to become a corporate sellout. And what did you do after law school? I went to work for a large corporate law firm. Sell out! All right, well, I gotta have you on after Trump loses in 2020. You can have me on. I don't mind talking about loss. I mean, I didn't even expect him to win. I didn't bother watching election returns in 2016. I was like resigned to the fate. So I, I didn't even 
even know until somebody texted me and be like, can you believe what's happening? I turned it on. Van Jones was crying on television. I was like, this is the best day ever. Yeah, no, I actually do think Trump's going to win, but uh, we'll of see. he's going to. He's done great things for the country. You just can't see beyond his tweets. Well, it's not just his tweets. There's lots of things he's done that are not great. Maybe that was an exaggeration. But I understand your point. Who knows what lurks in the hearts of voters? When it comes down to it, everybody gets into their voting booth, and it's an extremely personal decision for them. Yeah, you're right about that. That's why the polls were wrong on him. I think a lot of people just don't talk about it. They don't want to talk about who they vote for, but they like him. Yeah, I just hope that no matter what, voter turnout goes up because I think that voting is an expression of democracy, and it's part of what makes the United States the greatest country in the world. So go vote. Don't judge somebody by how they vote. It's not that I voted against gay rights or trans rights. I voted for Israel. I voted for sane energy policy. I voted for guns. I want the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to be a store, not a regulatory agency. I voted for what I wanted, and I had to weigh the pros and the cons against things like abortion and gay rights, even though I don't really think he's done anything to hurt gay rights other than hurt their feelings. As far as voting, we agree it's super important, but of course, there's lots of Republican-controlled state legislatures around the country that are trying to make it more difficult for people to vote. Do you agree with that? I don't think that voter ID is making it more difficult for people to vote. I actually think it's kind of offensive that people are suggesting that black people have a hard time getting a driver's license. That's pretty ridiculous. As a matter of objective fact, Republicans are trying to make it harder to vote in the United States. That's a fact. I think that Election Day should be a national holiday. We agree, my friend. Tell Mitch McConnell that. I do think that early voting should not be allowed and that everyone should just have a national holiday and then bars should be allowed to break whatever rule their local municipality has over the number of happy hours and every hour should be a happy hour on election day. Especially if you're Robert Kraft, it's always happy. I do want to point out that just because I live in a state with massage parlor slash brothels doesn't mean I've ever paid for sex. I beg for sex, but I don't pay for it. Thanks for coming on The Brick. Much appreciated. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Eric. Days of Christmas, 12 episodes. Wow. Thoughts on lobbyists, Donald Trump, or Disney? Email podcastbricolage at gmail.com and tell me about it. This has been Bricolage, created and hosted by Lev. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Theme song, sponsor song, and trivia song written by Alex Schiff. Special thanks to Dan Federa. Creative Commons attribution credits are in the text description of each episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe and leave us a good review. And if you didn't, you're a racist fascist who should totes just die. LOL. Let's hope for a good result. See you on the other side!